Welcome back to All My Relations. I'm your friendly co-host, Matika Wilbur, from the Tulalip and Swinomish tribes. And I'm a mom, a photographer, and a storyteller. And I'm so happy to be back on the air with you today. And before I begin, I just want to send my love and prayers and good medicine out to each and every one of you. And I'm Adrian. I am a writer, a professor, and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I know it's been a while since you've heard my voice, but I've missed all of you, and I hope everyone is hanging in there. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> to frame the conversation we're going to have today, we have to travel back in time to two years ago. It was the late spring of 2020. George Floyd had just been murdered by the Minneapolis police, and the world was watching as community members took to the streets to protest, and the Black Lives Matter movement was in full force. Here at All My Relations, we were trying to figure out what to do to be as supportive as we could be. Matika and I decided that we wanted to make an episode that talked about what the broader Indigenous community could do to support the movement for Black lives and to support the Black Native and Afro-Indigenous relatives in our communities. So we started talking to folks. And with each conversation, we realized that the story was so much larger than one episode and that trying to fit everything into a neatly packaged hour was actually a disservice to the communities we were hoping to support. So we kept talking (laughs) and then Matika and Desi had more conversations. And now we're sitting on some very beautiful interviews collected over the course of two years. Some relate to Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and others are more current. And others, like the conversation you're about to hear today, bring us back to the historical foundations of the relationships between Indigenous and Black communities. Recently, something happened that made us want to share this particular interview with Harvard professor and historian Dr. Taya Miles. Matika and I decided to contact Dr. Miles at the beginning of our process of recording all these conversations because we knew that in order to have a contemporary conversation, we had to have a historic foundation. And I, as a white Cherokee person, also knew that we couldn't have a conversation about the intersections of Black and Indigenous communities without talking about my own community's past of owning enslaved African people and the present struggles with anti-Blackness and the need for recognition of freedmen descendants. For folks who haven't heard this before, yes, you heard me correctly. Cherokee Nation, as well as the other, quote, five tribes in the Southeast, Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw, have histories of enslavement prior to Indian removal in the late 1800s. After removal to Indian territory, Cherokee Nation, in part of our final treaty with the U.S. government, the Treaty of 1866, agreed to grant full citizenship to the enslaved Africans who had made the journey on the Trail of Tears and to give them, quote, all the rights of native Cherokees. It took until 2017 and a federal court intervention for the nation to finally make good on these agreements and promises. The descendants of those who were enslaved by our tribe are known as freedmen descendants. And even after the 2017 court case, the freedmen conversation is one that had largely been avoided and pushed aside, and there hadn't been a large-scale acknowledgement or effort to bring freedmen descendants back to the community, an effort to acknowledge the contributions and connections of freedmen descendants to our community, or even openly admit that the historic Cherokee practice of slaveholding was morally wrong and against Cherokee values. Enter the most recent Chalagi Wherever We Are presentation a monthly YouTube show by the Cherokee Nation to engage issues of importance for tribal members, especially those living outside of our reservation. 
as a quick side note, I love that since the Supreme Court McGirt case, I can say that, like our reservation. That's pretty cool. Anyway, this month's topic was the Cherokee Freedmen descendants. And we want to play some of the presentation for you. These are the words of our current principal chief, Chief Hoskin. OCO, keeping promises and treating each other with respect are two important Cherokee values. Adhering to these values is how we build strength as a people. It's how we ensure that all of us share in the opportunities and obligations of Cherokee citizenship. That's why I'm so glad this month's Jalagi Wherever We Are examines the subject of Cherokee freedmen. Equality for all Cherokees, including Cherokee citizens of freedmen descent, is not only the law, but something that as chief I value deeply. The journey of Cherokee freedmen began with something that we must say plainly and clearly, the enslavement of black people under the laws of the Cherokee Nation in the 19th century. We must also say just as plainly and just as clearly that our enslavement of other human beings was simply wrong. I was blown away. I highly recommend listening and watching to the whole presentation. There are conversations with Freedmen descendants like Marilyn Van, who was one of the leaders in fighting for Freedmen recognition and now holds a position in tribal government, as well as Q&As with tribal leaders and more. It was so important and beautiful to hear the words spoken so plainly that what some of our Cherokee ancestors did by engaging the practice of slavery was morally wrong and that we have a responsibility to move forward and right those wrongs. Okay, all of that framing is to say, after watching the Chalagi Wherever We Are presentation, we thought it would be a good moment to share our interview with Taya Miles. In this interview, we talk about the historical foundations of owning enslaved Africans in the Cherokee Nation specifically, but also the intersections between our communities and how these lines weren't always clear cut. It was a wide ranging conversation and Dr. Miles has incredible ways of framing all of this. Some caveats before we launch in. We recorded this two years ago. The state of the world was very different. And as you heard from the cliff, the conversation has moved forward in new and beautiful ways in the past two years, not just about Cherokee freedmen, but also about Black, Native, and Afro-Indigenous inclusion and perspectives in general. So there are parts that feel a little dated, but I think that's a good thing. We also were still trying to figure out how to do remote recordings because it was still early in the pandemic. Unfortunately, the audio is not the best at times, so definitely bear with us. With all of that, put yourself in the headspace of two years ago, enjoy this interview with Dr. Miles, and then hopefully we can reflect on both how far we've come, but also how far we still have to go. As with every conversation on the podcast, there's so much more we could have talked about and covered, and we hope this can be a beginning to more. So look for us releasing more of these interviews on Black and Native intersections in the coming weeks and months. Dr. Taya Miles is a professor of history at Harvard University, where her research, teaching, and writing examines the intersections of African-American, Native American, and women's histories. She is the award-winning author of several books, including All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake, which recently won the 2021 National Book Award for Nonfiction. 
In 2011, she was the recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, also known as the Genius Grant, and is a well-known and respected scholar on issues of Black and Native history, in particular, the legacies of African enslavement by Southeastern tribes, which is what we are talking about with her today. She's incredible, and we're so honored to be able to have her on the podcast. Sorry. (laughs) All my relations. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm just honored and thrilled to be able to have your voice on the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. I'm really honored and excited that you both invited me. I really, I love it that, that we're going to have this conversation, that you're bringing in lots of voices and we'll have a chance to air some of this stuff out. I think people do need to hear it, you know, be able to engage with it. I think it's time. It's been time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, this podcast is dedicated to discussing relationality. We uh, were mm-hmm. called All My Relations. In my community, we say, which uh, means like, I, I sort of like I live for my relatives. Um, and mm-hmm. we start every conversation that way. We discuss how, uh, where our place is in our relationality. And one of the things I was really taken back by when I started looking into your work, you you talk about how um, individualism and individuality was key to what it meant to be civilized. And I think that is a really important concept for us to to acknowledge that individuality or separatism um, has played a major role in in um, shaping the way that we live today. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can reflect on that a bit for us. I love that question, and I want to reflect on it. But if you'll permit me to, I want to um, just go back um, a little bit mm-hmm. to really the, the, the structuring moment of Black and Native interaction uh, on this land, because I think it's really important for us to recognize and say out loud that there's a lot of pain here, there's a rawness here, um, and there is a reason for that. As far as uh, the consensus scholarship tells us, our interconnections really go back to the invasion of the Americas and to a settler colonial slavery complex that caught all of our peoples up and was really our mode and means of first introduction. That's a terrible way to meet someone, right? That is a traumatic way to begin a relationship. And yet we have made relationships. We have managed to see one another as allies and as kin, despite the fact that we were brought together in systems that were actually meant to destroy us, to take land, to exploit us, to steal labor, and that cared not at all about our lives. So that's an important context for thinking about all of this, that um, the system as it developed over time was never in our favor, either as um, Black communities, Native communities, Native nations, or as people who might have wanted to come together and to unite and to join. We have constantly been pushing back and fighting against this system 
which has so many layers, you know, legal, cultural, political, psychological, emotional, somatic. We can probably add more and more uh, descriptors to that. So it's a really, really, really hard situation in which we find ourselves now trying to relate, wanting to relate, knowing we have had relationships, but still existing within the structuring frame of settler colonialism and slavery that never went away, right? We know it never went away. <laughs> and, um, and the logics of this interconnected frame, because they go together, right? I mean, taking land and destroying Native communities and destroying Native lives and enslaving Native people and importing Black people and enslaving Black people and destroying Black lives and destroying Black indigeneity, by the way, because Africans mm -hmm. were indigenous to places before they were brought here. Um, all of this was endemic to, necessary to, the founding of this country. And we know that history doesn't just disappear and go away. I mean, I think that in Native cultures and in Black cultures, we, in many ways, you know, we count on that. We rely on that. We rely on the fact that history doesn't go away. We want to relate to our past. We need to connect to our ancestors. We need to connect to our places and our land bases. We don't want history to disappear. And no, it doesn't disappear. So all of this that I'm trying to fill in, um, all of this structure and the painful part of the history is still with us. Mm -hmm. And yes, a part of uh, that structuring frame did have to do with uh, individualism. Absolutely. Because, and now we're moving into an early American period, because the U.S. federal government, in its infancy, had to try to get a handle on this land that it was taking and wanting to gain control over, and had to try to get a handle on Native peoples uh, who were everywhere and who existed in larger numbers than Americans did at first then. And the federal government and its officials and um, citizens of the early U.S. nation tried all kinds of ways to control what they thought was an Indian problem. Constantly experimenting, coming up with new ideas. Nothing was working. It wasn't really working to, to try to kill Native people because you couldn't kill them all, right? Um, it, it wasn't really working to try to ignore Native people because they were too many in number. And for a long period of time, they were too powerful politically, actually. So what could be done? And as we know, one of the ideas that early founders um, and thinkers came up with was the notion that Native people could be, uh, quote, civilized, they could be transformed, they could be uh, turned into kind of proto-Europeans, and they could be incorporated with less trouble, incorporated into the new American nation, which was imagined as a white nation, with less trouble, and that eventually they would kind of just fade away. I mean, some of them would be dead and killed off, right? Others would be just incorporated and then um, worked into a system in such a way that they would support that system, especially as low-wage laborers. Civilization meant turning Native people into some kind of idea of an Anglo-American person 
And there were certain principles and um, precepts associated with uh, whiteness, you know, with white Americanness. One of those key ideas was individualism. Absolutely. The notion that each person is, um, is unto himself. And I'm, I'm using that, <laughs> that pronoun purposefully. Each person is unto himself. And that person has rights. That person has responsibilities. One of the biggest rights that person has is the right to property, to individual property, which belongs to that person alone and can be managed. It can be held on to. It can be distributed in accordance with that person's desire and protected by the American law because property ownership was um, an important value in the United States. This was obviously uh, anathema to the view that many Native people held about what it meant to to be, you know, uh, to be in the world, to be alive. Uh, and it was also anathema to what many Black people believed in terms of how it was that a person could be and could exist. Professor Miles, thank you so much for that. You know, I bet there's not a lot of people that are at your level that are speaking about what you're speaking about so publicly. Do you find in your work that folks are encountering this information for the first time? Are they surprised to hear that Native nations, in particular the Cherokee Nation and the five uh, civilized tribes, I'm making air quotes, uh, participated in enslaving African people? Yes, people have been surprised. They've been surprised for um, the past a couple decades. I think we're now into the second <laughs> decade. I've kind of strange to think think about all the time that's passing. But the second decade that I'm doing this work, and the surprise comes from different quarters, and it 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 takes different shapes. Some of it has to do with um, people's genuine lack of awareness of these dynamics. But some of it has to do with a sense of you know kind of self preservation and the protection of dignity. So. When I first started doing this work, I would hear questions, concerns, and pushback from African-Americans, actually, and um, sometimes from Black people who were descended from other Black people or Afro-Native people who had been enslaved by Native people in Oklahoma. And that pushback, I think, was really about a sense of protecting one's personal history and dignity of identity. So some people, African-Americans I'm talking about, Afro-Native people descended from enslaved people, is who I'm referring to. They felt that to hear about, to recognize, to admit that they may have come into Native society through enslavement was actually humiliating. It was painful. It was um, a way of thinking about their history and the families that they did not want to confront. And then there were also Native people who were perhaps surprised to learn this, but also there may have been, you know, a sense of, again, self-protection around this. I'm talking about Native people of um, the Southeastern nations who systematically owned Black people as property, who um, brought them into Indian territory when they were coerced, forced to move west um, during Indian removal, 
and who were able to rebuild their lives in Indian Territory, um, in part because of Black enslaved labor. So there was a rejection there of the idea that Native people could actually be responsible, culpable, involved in any kind of activity uh, that could be viewed as oppressive. And then there's kind of a larger dominant sense of surprise from people who don't think very much about Black history or Native history, and really who had no idea about the depth of the assault on Black lives and Native lives throughout the history of this country and colonial period. So yes, lots of surprise. Thank you. And I'm wondering, as I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, um, I'm a white-coating Cherokee person, Um, I'm someone who is very much an advocate for indigenous sovereignty and thinking about what it means for the future of our nations, etc. I've been thinking a lot about how our tribe in particular has really held up anti-blackness, has this history of uh, of owning slaves, of uh, exploiting enslaved labor, all of these things. And this is something that your research and work uh, focuses on specifically. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that history and then maybe help me to think through what are ways that we as Indian country in general, but like my tribe specifically can think about moving forward um, and addressing this ongoing harm that we have, um, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you for voicing that and for owning that. Um, One of the things that I have been heartened by in the last several years is seeing the ways in which um, Native scholars, writers, who are members of nations that uh, used to own Black people as property, seeing the ways in which they're actually speaking up and speaking out and owning this history and um, and denouncing it and saying that it was wrong and saying that they recognize that that action on the part of their nation in that moment of time um, was actually unethical. But it was wrong. This is hard for people to say. It's hard for people to to look at and examine. You're putting it out there. And you're taking the first steps, which means that descendants of um, people who were enslaved by your people don't have to be the ones who are out there on their own. And I want to say something here before I kind of address the historical question, which is it's hard in these conversations, I think, for us to remember that we're not always talking about separate groups, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, sometimes Native people are Black people. Sometimes Black people are Native people. Oftentimes Cherokees are Black people, you know, right, Adrian? Mm -hmm. Um, And at other times we are talking about, um, I'll, I'll put two in quotation marks, separate groups, but of course we know that there's no such thing as <laughs> that kind of simplicity when it comes to uh, Native American Native history, even Black history, because we're talking about right now hundreds of tribal nations, and we're talking about lots of different kinds of Black communities whose lives together have developed differently uh, depending upon their location. So there is a good deal of complexity here. And I just want us to try to keep that in mind as we try to talk it through that. Um, when Cherokee people 
enslaved Blacks, also sometimes enslaving themselves, let me say. By that, I mean enslaving Turkey people who were Black. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, I think, if you will allow me to say, um, that is a violation of deep Cherokee, Indigenous Southeastern, and Indigenous more broadly values. Absolutely. It's a violation. Violations of values hurt, right? I mean, they bring harm and they cause trauma. We can't let that stuff stand because we will all continue to suffer. I mean, there's a higher level of effect going on here is is what I'm trying to say. I think it can be really tempting for us to slant all the way to one side or all the way to the other side and not see the duality of the history and of the experience. Turkey people did um, hunt, catch, trade, own African people and Afro-Cherokees as slaves in the late 1700s, uh, all the way up through the Civil War. This is a real and painful history that's very difficult for uh, many folks to to confront and think about. The context in which Cherokee people began this activity is one that traces back to what I was saying earlier. It's a context of oppression and colonial surround. That doesn't mean that Cherokee people as individuals Um, that the Cherokee Nation as a whole should be let off the hook for this unethical behavior and for the damage that uh, has been done to Black people and to Afro-Cherokee people. But it does mean that we can begin to take steps toward understanding how it is that Cherokees made this terrible choice, this, you know, wrong choice, this bad choice, this choice that harmed another group so terribly. I kind of think of it as a, you know, um, a devil's bargain that Cherokee people made at that time period when the United States was really um, beginning to, you know, put its, put its own roots down as a new nation. It was really putting new kinds of pressures onto Southeastern indigenous peoples. So Cherokees recognized as early as the mid 1700s, that there was going to be big trouble coming from these uh, British interlopers, coming from these American interlopers. They recognized that plantation slavery was spreading and growing around them. They recognized that Black people, which at the time wouldn't have been known to them as Black people, right? But they recognized that people with dark skins, that foreigners coming from different places, who looked differently were being treated 
like possessions were being treated like animals. They wanted to protect themselves. Part of that protection, that act of protection, meant um, engaging with the new U.S. government, negotiating treaties. And a part of that treaty negotiation uh, involved the U.S. government wanting Cherokee people to promise to catch and return enslaved blacks who might have run away from American territory. So from the, the mm-hmm. very earliest moments of um, diplomacy between the Cherokee Nation and the U.S. government, black people were caught up in the middle. And we know that all Cherokees have engaged in this, and um, even some of the Cherokee negotiators seem to try to want to create space for their own action, right? Uh, their response was, you know, okay, we'll do this, but, you know, we, we might just lose, use a rope, and we don't know how tight the knot might be. So they <laughs> seem to kind of say, well, you know, who knows what will happen, but, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and enter into this agreement. Over time, the Cherokee Nation became more and more aware of the U.S. nation's intention to squeeze it in, to um, close it down, and to eventually push Cherokee people off those really rich and fertile southern lands, those lands that would become so important to the development of the U.S. quote cotton kingdom and the U.S. economy. And so how could Cherokee people defend themselves? How could they defend their families, their clans, their government? What they decided to do was bend. To bend toward an American vision of what it meant to be civilized in order to be left alone. A part of this scheme, part of this plan, was black slave ownership. As unbelievable as it is to us today, um, trying to turn people into objects, to possess them, to steal their lives, to ruin them, was viewed as a civilized action. And so Cherokee people were encouraged to own black slaves. Cherokees were expected to push to become individuals, right? To own black slaves, to, you know, quote, improve their individual land holdings through the labor of those black slaves, to grow crops, to sell those crops, to make profit individually, right? Mm-hmm and Mm -hmm. to earn wealth. But it was at the expense of other people whose lives were also beautiful and whose lives were also worthy of defending. It's a very sad story. It's terrible. But I think just as terrible is uh, an attempt to cover it up, an attempt to say, oh, it didn't happen, attempt to say, Muslims, a few of those mixed race intermarried may as well have been white Cherokees. I have heard these arguments. <laughs> yeah, um, same. Okay, so we're on the same page here. That's not the case. Now, certainly there were people who criticized this behavior. There were people who kind of voted with their feet, that is, didn't engage in this behavior. behavior. There were people who um, owned Blacks as slaves and then married them or um, (laughs) incorporated them into family and kinship networks, that happened. But the Cherokee 
National Council actually did agree to legalize black slavery. They passed laws to make sure that black slavery could be um, organized in a systematic way, to make sure that black people could be controlled, and to keep black people out of Cherokee government offices as best as they could. So there was a bit of a consensus around this. And there is an accountability for this damage. There is also, of course, um, a legacy that Cherokee people live with today, Afro-Cherokee people live with, descendants of those who were enslaved by Cherokees live with today. And it's a legacy of uh, the pain of the history being written out of the nation, mm-hmm. the Dawes Allotment Act and the Curtis Act that followed it, which defined people who had been owned by Cherokees, you know, only as, quote, freedmen, didn't allow them to be counted as Cherokee, didn't bother to try to them. Now, blood quantum, messy issue. I personally am not for it, okay? But that <laughs> was the way in which Turkey people were being designated at that time by the U.S. government. But Black people owned by Cherokees, some of whom were also Cherokees, did not have their blood quantum counted. That meant there was no record. And that meant they could, over time, be viewed as not being legitimately Cherokee. So uh, the, the legacy, the remainder, the uh, afterlife of Cherokee enslavement of Black people, it all persists and continues to play out in people's lives through, you know, all kinds of legal fights and contestations. So I think one of the things that you asked, Adrian, is what can be done about this? Um, I'm not Cherokee, and I'm not a descendant of people who were enslaved by Cherokees. It's one of the reasons why I try to be careful. Mm-hmm. around how I frame the issue and describe the issue and around what I say. Um, I happen to be partnered with a Native person who is a Grovant Aani from Montana. And he says this thing that, that I find really helpful, which, which um, he attributes to Fiona, which is, it's an important question. Who has the right to speak about this? You mm-hmm. know? I mean, who... Who really has the investment? Who's made the commitment? Who knows what they're talking about? (laughs) They don't have a right to speak. Maybe take a step back and do a little more listening. So um, I I offer this from a place of humility and not being a member of of these groups. But I also offer it from a a place of the observer, somebody who has spent a lot of time reading about these issues. and, And I think that one of the first things that could happen would be to begin to repair this damage would be for Cherokee people who get to be counted as Cherokee people, who get to be viewed in their interactions as authentic. And I know this is complicated. I know there's all kinds of color issues and, and you know, um, white skin, browner skin issues that maybe we'll get to. But Cherokee people who get to be counted as Cherokee people and viewed as authentic, they have um, 
more power. So how should they use this power? Well, I think one of the first things that could be done is um, kind of simple and straightforward, maybe kind of obvious. Just recognize your kin. Recognize your kin. And stand mm-hmm. up and, you know, speak out for your family. You know, claim them. Embrace them. Love them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that can go a long way. And kinship recognition can happen, you know, from the most intimate level of somebody comes to a meeting, they look black, right? not assuming that they are Cherokee, right? Assuming that they're they're Cherokee because they're there, because they're present, because they're participating and welcoming them. That's kind of an, an intimate small scale example, but I, I I think I can guarantee that that would make a huge difference in life. Mm-hmm. And besides that, of course, there's um, there's public space. Like this podcast. I mean, you're using this public space now to do this very thing. Writing, speaking, um, being visible as somebody who ac- accepts Black people as Cherokees, accepts Black people as Native, values those relationships publicly, claims those folks as kin, I think can be so important. And of course, you know, <laughs> be political, vote, vote in your nation when these matters come right. up. Write op-eds to your tribal newspaper. Don't hide. You know, don't hide away from your relatives. I think I have one more thing to add to that. And and this this can go to the Cherokee question. It can go to the broader question of Black and Native relationships. I think that we could also, you know, have more generosity toward one another. Mm. And we could define generosity, you know, broadly, and, and we could recognize generosity as another one of those values that trace us back through indigenous communities for thousands of years and before that, you know, for as long as we can tell. We could recognize generosity as about sharing, you know. Uh, we can think about sharing material things, but also we can think about sharing identities. And generosity is about, I think, being forgiving. You know, if somebody comes into a meeting or, you know, a room, a space, you know, a house, and maybe they haven't been home in a long time, or maybe they've never been home. Maybe they were adopted out and they're coming back for the first time. Maybe they feel awkward. Maybe they said say the wrong thing, you know. Um, maybe they make a claim that others might view as suspicious, but he wonders, you know, hackles, you know, rise. How about a moment of generosity and even forgiveness? And this goes both ways. This really goes both ways. And I think that um, for people who are Native, they're um, tribal citizens, they are, are, are viewed as authentic, they're, they're viewed as, you know, kind of being real because of those reasons and also because of the way they look. Um, they can maybe sometimes feel tempted to say that other people who don't share their standing or status or characteristics, you know, aren't real or aren't authentic. I think that it's generous to kind of set that aside and to think about sharing as a value. 
and think about kinship as a value. That was, oh my gosh, that was beautiful. That generosity piece, I think, is definitely something that we, I hope we all can can lean on and think about and is something that we've done so many episodes on identity and thinking about blood quantum and all these things. And I think that is the key in thinking about relationality and what it means to reestablish kinship ties or reach out to your kin is that spirit of generosity and letting people come as they are and recognizing that people are at different points on their, their journey with all of this. Um, So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for your response. I appreciate what you have to say there. You know, I just, I, I kind of just wanted to say, you know, that I think that what your work does really beautifully, Professor, is it helps me to think about the way that our stories are intertwined, both historically and, and how it's brought us to where we're at right now. I run into the conversation often when people tell me to get over it. You know, they tell me like um, the things that happened here happened a long time ago. We're in a new place now. And it's, that's not my responsibility. And, you know, history is remain, should remain in the past, you know, type of thing. And, um, well, we have a lot of young people that listen to this podcast who identify, um, who identify with this experience that we're discussing in in a way that in, in you brought up and can be painful. What kind of message can we have that can encourage our young people to stay to stay diligent and to re- remain resilient, you know, and that I think that we could all use a little uplifting um, messages of encouragement. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to speak to that, Matika. Oh, goodness. I have some of those young people uh, in my household. I have um, a couple of 16-year-olds, they're twins, and I have an 11-year-old. And I think about their experience all the time. I, I think about um, sometimes I worry about how they will, will feel about um, their identities and how they will feel about uh, whether or not they are accepted by um, Ani, you know, larger Native and, and Black individuals and communities. But I have to say that I'm really heartened by this moment that we're in right now. Even though it feels like our society is falling apart in many ways, um, because, um, if I may say, our leadership at the federal level uh, is corrupt, we can see on the ground that our communities are actually coming together. I have uh, just just really felt inspired by seeing who have come out for the Black Lives Matter protests. And there's a lot of attention to, you know, white people being in, in the crowd in, in various media. And, you know, that's good. I'm glad they're out there. Um, but what I'm attending to is all the Native people who are in those crowds or gathered in those cities and gathered in those towns and who are protesting explicitly for Black lives. I have been, you know, really inspired by... You know, seeing some photos that my friend and colleague Rosalind Peer posted um, of folks out at Blackfeet, young people out at Blackfeet, who made you know all of these amazing posters about Black Lives Matter, and I was heartened by the the Lumbee statement about George Floyd's death, 
and about connections that are being made between um, police brutality against Native people, especially in Minneapolis, and police brutality against Black people. Conversations are happening and people are showing up. And this is one of the first and important steps toward our reconciliation as peoples is showing up for each other. Young people are showing up and that's incredible. And we can show up for each other in so many ways. We can do it by being out on the streets. We can also do it by, you know, connecting through social media, you know, connecting online. We can do it by having conversations. We can do it by affirming one another. And I think that if we can do that, this moment is just the first step. I mean, right now, we're seeing coalitions out there fighting for Black people, fighting for Black people's lives. Native people are showing up. Imagine what it would be like if in the next campaign, we're also fighting for Native land. And Black people are showing up in the same numbers and in the same ways all across the country that Native people are showing up right now for Black lives. I mean, there is a reason why, and I have to go back to history for a moment here. There's a reason why colonial officials and Indian agents who were working for first um, the British government and then the American government there's a reason why they tried to keep Black and Native people apart, and they did try. We can see it in their letters. We can see it in their missives. We can see it in their reports back to their governments. They tried to keep Black and Native people apart. They tried to make us fight one another. They tried to arm us to kill one another because they were afraid of what would happen if and when Black and Native people recognized, huh, we have common interests. Mm -hmm. What could happen? History could be changed. This country could be transformed. And that's, I think, the message that I want to share with young people. We're seeing a great opening right now. And we can continue to build on that. And it starts with relationship. It starts with love. It starts with generosity. It starts with acceptance. It starts with a word of welcome from one to the other. Thank you, Professor, for all that you shared with us. Indeed, our histories and futures are intertwined. If you would like to learn more about her work, you can go to her website, tiamiles.com. That's T-I-Y-A-M-I-L-E-S.com to learn more about her work, to buy her book. I highly recommend it. And I just want to say thank you to our audience for sticking with us uh, through that audio that is a little rough around the edges, but still so valuable. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's also important to note that chattel slavery was practiced by all of the so-called, quote, five civilized tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole. Of the five tribes, Cherokee is the only one to recognize the full rights of citizenship for freedmen descendants. Seminole freedmen can enroll, but do not receive full rights and benefits of citizenship. Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw have resisted recognizing freedmen descendants' citizenship rights. So clearly, we still have a long way to go on these issues. A few resources we wanted to share. 
The Cherokee Nation has put out a call for freedmen descendants to share cultural artifacts, family photos, and other memorabilia for an exhibit, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Additionally, Creek Freedmen descendants have a GoFundMe to raise funds to support the community and legal efforts to gain recognition, which we'll link below as well. Lastly, as I mentioned in the interview, I made a reading list on my blog two years ago on anti-blackness in the Cherokee Nation, which has a wide range of academic and non-academic resources on the topic, and that will be linked as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So as we say on almost all of our episodes, this episode is not a complete understanding of this complex issue. There are many, many, many more conversations that need to be addressed that we would like to get into. We want to talk about police brutality and defunding the police. We want to have more conversations with our allies and relatives about how we can participate in creating a more equitable future. So stay tuned, relatives. We are in this with you. Special thanks to the people that advised us and had conversations with us about this topic, specifically Sidelta Asawi and Marquana Four Killer. Big wado to the Cherokee Nation for hosting that powerful conversation and also for letting us share it here. My hands are raised to the All My Relations team, Teo Shans, editing producer, um, fellow that does all the things, <laughs> Sierra Sana, original episode artwork, Will Paisley for admin, Lindsay Hightower for social media advancement. Special thanks to Nicole Richards for editing and musical composition and Casa Overall for the music you're hearing right now. <laughs> and to all of you, our loyal listeners, and especially our Patreon subscribers and the Wisteria Fund that make this work possible. We will be releasing special content on our Patreon related to the subject. So be sure to go over there and check it out. You can find us on Instagram at AMR Podcast. And our website is allmyrelationspodcast.com. Please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you pod. And, you know, if you want to, you can send us a voice message on our website. So we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, relatives. Tiguitzi, Tsiayas. Naschalachat, Tsiayas. Take good care. Aho. Aho.